We can, we can all go home now, can't we? I'm telling you, to be back there and to see a church get so excited about singing the gospel in my helpless estate, and you guys just, just, you couldn't contain it. And then to see this next generation rising up, uh, wanting to give their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come on, we can go home right now, can't we? <laughs> um, Who's excited for a couple weeks from right now? When we have, come on, you guys, I, I like this. We got to get excited about not just sitting in rows on Sunday mornings like this, but when we have a couple of weeks, these are not throwaway weeks. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about next, no, <clears throat> Labor Day weekend and the weekend before, those two Sundays. Uh, we are not going to gather in here. We're going to tailgate out there good. You guys are catching it. Um, And again, it's not tailgate to tailgate. It's tailgate so that we can learn how to be the body of Jesus Christ, uh, showing the affections of Christ to each other, uh, where a sermon series isn't just another sermon series, but we take it really serious. Like, we want to live this out. So today, I think we're going to get some more marching orders on on how to do this. Uh, We're in this series called Meals with Jesus. If you're here last week, uh, last week Jesus, with just eight days to live, approaching Jerusalem, uh, gets the last leg of the journey in Jericho, and it's like, hmm, I'm going to find the town's worst sinner and go eat with him. And he goes and he eats with Zacchaeus. And that whole thing ends with, today's salvation has come to this man's house, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. In other words, Jesus himself is not just preaching sermons. Jesus is so among the Zacchaeuses of the world. He's loving them. He's doing life with them. The sinners, as, as the text says, the prodigals, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. Uh, when you read the Gospels, they're all flocking to Jesus. He's a magnet for the outcasts and the untouchables. And we get marching orders just in that. So today our text is Luke 14. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. Um, if you can do that, let's do so. Otherwise, stand with your hearts. If you have a Bible like mine, it's found on page 847. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. <laughs> They're always watching him. And there was a man suffering from this abnormal swelling of his body. Obviously something that uh, would make this person hard to even look at. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the, the rabbis, is it lawful, is it scriptural to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and then sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you had a child or an ox that would fall into a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. (laughs) Then he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. So he told this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. 
For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, excuse me, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, (laughs) the walk of shame, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when the best So that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all and the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, a banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat the feast in the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You can be seated. So our text starts off this morning, one Sabbath, and we kind of could just quickly gloss over that, but we need to do just a little uh, contextual work here. To a Jew, Sabbath is not just another day in the week. Sabbath is what Christmas or Thanksgiving is to us. It is this all-day feast. It's a feast that God instructed them uh, essentially to celebrate the creator and his creation. For six days, uh, God created, uh, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And it's not just the celebration of God and and that God made this, this incredible world But in light of what the world is and has become, it also looks forward to the hope of of new creation, of God remaking the world. And and so Sabbath is is this all-day feast once a week to celebrate uh, that that fact. I remember when we lived in Jerusalem for a whole semester, uh, one of my classes was with uh, a Jewish rabbi, and on Fridays... He would every Friday come into class. It was, it was like a one o'clock class, literally all giddy, almost dancing. And he'd always have to tell us like what he was cooking that day. Because Sabbath was literally just three hours away. He couldn't wait. And, 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 and this is what Sabbath is. It's, it, it's when everything is shut down. So that family and friends can, can come together for a Thanksgiving, Christmas-like sort of day uh, to celebrate God, that he's the creator, to celebrate his creation by indulging in his creation and good food together, knowing that new creation will one day come. Because the kingdom of heaven, I want us to get this in our minds, it's not just a proposition In fact, the kingdom of heaven is not just heaven as we think about heaven. The kingdom of heaven is heaven coming to earth. 
It's heaven restoring earth. It's God's rule breaking in, namely through heaven's king, to bring shalom to all our chaos. So it's something we taste. It's something we see. That's why in the Bible, it's oftentimes depicted as a feast, which again is why Jesus isn't just preaching sermons. He is eating and he is drinking because the kingdom of heaven isn't just an idea. It isn't just another philosophy. It isn't just a doctrine that we believe. The kingdom of heaven is this tangible, experiential uh, reality, this whole new reality that breaks into our lives, into our worlds, that, that changes everything. It's God bringing real shalom to real chaos. And so when you think about the kingdom of heaven, one of the things you ought to do is think about the best food, the best drink, with some of your best friends, the people that you love most. Because that is but a, 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 a foretaste of, of, of God's kingdom and his kingdom that is to come. And that's why Sabbath is a feast. It, it, it's a foretaste of new creation. New creation, which is why uh, the greeting for that day is not just shalom, but it's Shabbat shalom. God's going to bring everything and put it all back together. That's why the prophet said that when the kingdom of heaven comes uh, in all its glory, it's going to be this most amazing feast. And, and, and in their idea, uh, when this feast comes, Messiah is the one who's going to bring it. Messiah is going to be uh, its host. Uh, it's, it's from passages like Isaiah 25, um, which you can turn to or you can read uh, on the screen. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. All peoples there are goyim, the nations, the Gentiles. And a great feast of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. Because on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. A feast. Resurrection. New creation. And we see this in the Gospels. Uh, in Luke 13, just the previous chapter from what we read. Verse 29, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will take their place at the feast in the new kingdom of God. Uh, also in Matthew 22, 1 to 2, Jesus says, and what can I compare the kingdom of heaven to? It's, it's, it's like this feast that a father threw for his son. Or, or Revelation 19, 7 to 9 talks uh, at the end, the end is is. is is, is going to be, yes, this great day of God, but it's, it's going to be this banquet. It's, it's called the Messianic Banquet, where we're going to eat with the, with, with, with the bridegroom Christ. In fact, there's one group in, in Jesus' day called the Essenes. They're so obsessed with this, this Messianic Banquet that every single day in their great banquet hall, they had a feast to anticipate 
this messianic banquet. This is why Jesus' first miracle, not first in order, John doesn't care about order. I hope that doesn't bother you, but his, his gospel is way out of order. But why is uh, Jesus' first miracle uh, turning water into wine? In fact, he turns a lot of water into not just a lot of wine, but the best of wine at a wedding reception. Because it's his de- declaration to the world, Isaiah 25 is breaking in. The Messiah is here, the Lord of the feast. And I think Christians, especially in our part of the world, I think we've lost sight of this. I think we have so reduced the gospel of God's kingdom to a doctrine that we just believe, or we've so limited the kingdom of heaven to the spiritual world. We're kind of like the the older brother in the parable of the prodigal who refuses to go into the party. We're we're too good for for the feast. I think we've become very older brotherish, a bit prudish, a little bit uptight. Listen, God made the whole world, which includes the material world. And yes, he made it for us to steward, but even more so, He made it for us to enjoy. And I think the optimal place for the kingdom of heaven to be seen, to be known, to be experienced is around the table, eating and drinking, a meal in the home. Now, how do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us in this text, tells us Jesus is at a prominent Pharisee's Sabbath feast. Prominent there means a leading Pharisee this is probably one of the biggest Sabbath party parties in town. It probably has a long list of who's who, Jesus being one of them. You got to love Jesus. So he walks into a scene like this, and no one stirs the pot. <laughs> oh, Jesus stirring the pot all the time. Uh, he, he, he finds this guy whose body is swelled up with disease, And he brings them forward, looks at everybody, and says, okay, is it lawful, is it scriptural to heal on the Sabbath? Crickets. Jesus heals them. Imagine that. Imagine being present. Imagine watching that. This body disgusting to look at all of a sudden before your very eyes is made well. That's the Sabbath hope. New creation. He's not done yet. He keeps stirring. In verse 5, he then says, you know, if, if you had a child and that child fell into a deep well on the Sabbath, would you not work that day immediately to get that child out? Crickets, still crickets. Jesus still isn't done. He sees that this feast resembles the way the world feasts, namely the way the Greeks and the Romans feast. 
And he, he's like, man, this, this is not a feast that reflects God. This is not a feast that puts God's heart on display. So then Jesus just boldly lectures everyone on what kingdom feasting ought to look like. In verses 7 to 11, he first addressed the guests. In verses 12 to 14, he then addressed the host. Then he ends this whole thing, we didn't read it, by, but by telling a parable about his father's feast. So he first addresses the guests in verse 7 to 11. Look at those verses. Because essentially what Jesus is, is, is saying is, when you're a guest at a party, don't seek out those people who are at the top or are in the center of things. Don't be that guy. I mean, come on, we all know that guy. We all know that person that in, in every social sitting, setting, they, 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 they need to find the important people, the, the, the people that are at top. They, they, they somehow need to, to, to move in, into the center, and they posture, uh, they, they, they manipulate, they, they, they just kind of jockey uh, their way around to, to, to try to schmooze with those kind of people. And I think if we're honest, uh, I, I, I think we know that, that every organization, every institution, every social network there is, uh, has what are considered the important people, the, the inner circle, um, the, those cliques of, of popularity. And I, I think we could also be pretty honest and say, while we might not be that guy in total, uh, we, we can all, we, all play this game. I mean, just look at Grand Rapids. This, this, this city is driven by this game. Whether it's in our schools, where our kids go every single day, our neighborhoods, uh, people of all ages are, are, are driven, I think, by image and popularity and trying to show off who they know and uh, the, the people that they run with and, and the places that, that that brings them. And then all the posturing and, and, and the jockeying, I mean, all the fake and the phony, the gamesmanship, this image-obsessed way of, of relating to each other. And, and, and sadly, it's in the church. And I have one word for it. It's gross. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way. I, I have a quote from him. He says, we all have this unhealthy desire to belong, a dark ambition to move in the right circles, to win the praise from the right kinds of people. We all have this desperate need to be on the inside because we are all afraid of being on the outside. I think this is why whenever we enter any social scene, uh, any organization, school, business, uh, social gathering, we, we just instinctively, especially if we're strangers, look around and see if there are any of our kind of people here. And some people even take this further. They're, they're even going to seek out, I wonder if there is an inner ring here to find that I can be a part of those, those important people. 
at a minimum, C.S. Lewis is right. I mean, all of us have this need to be, belong. We all have a, a bit of a desire to be on the inside. We're all afraid of being on the outside. And there's a reason for this. That goes all the way back to the beginning. You and I, whether we know it or not, were made for a garden. And this garden is our true home because God was at the center of that garden. But here's the deal. Because of our own doing, we've been kicked out of the garden. We've been barred from the inside. But here's the joy of the gospel. Is that the God of the universe, through the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Christ came across all worlds. It's to seek out lost people. It's to find us, and it's to bring us home. And how did Jesus do this? Well, we've been hearing about this for weeks now. In Luke 7, Jesus contrasts his ministry with John the Baptist. He says John and his disciples, they're known for fasting and forsaking the world. He says, not so with the Son of Man, says Jesus. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. He came to feast, the banquet, to bring the feast. Remember suha? Suha is that specific kind of meal in the ancient world. It, it, it's a meal that's done for the sole purpose of reconciliation. It's to restore a broken relationship. It, it, it's the meal, it's the feast, the father's feast in the parable of the prodigal. It's that feast to welcome home his son to reconcile that uh, relationship, to bring his son back into his arms, to restore him uh, to fellowship. I think almost all of Jesus' meals, especially when it talks about, and he ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. When he ate last week, when he ate with Zacchaeus, this is a sulha. They're meals done to reconcile lost people to the arms of the Father, to bring them uh, to the Father's feast, to bring them home. And here's what we have as believers. Because we've been brought in, we now know, we know, we know, we know the love of the Father. We've experienced experienced him bringing us in and because of this one we are totally set free from feasting the way the world feasts we don't come to a feast to get our needs met we don't come to a feast so we can start going up the social ladder or making our way into the center. We have all of that in Christ, which means that the way that we feast is altogether different than the way the world feasts. You listen to Jesus in verses 8 and 9. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat, and then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. 
A believer should never be in that position. And think about it. Think, th- think about that person who, again, we know this person, who, who, who tries so hard to make friends. That person usually has no friends. The person's trying so hard to be popular can sometimes become the most annoying person to be around. That person who's always craving to make it to the top is oftentimes the person who is most alone. In fact, they can't see about themselves what everyone else can see. And this is why Jesus instructs in verses 10 to 11, when you go to, the, go to a feast, go to the bottom, go to the people who are on the periphery. I'll just speak from my own experiences because I've been in situations where there's a little bit of status and an and inner ring and, and some important people. And, and I'm going to draw a conclusion. Please don't throw anything at me right now. But the, the, the higher you go up socially, the more you climb that ladder, the more you go into that, the more fake it becomes. You talk about rules, rules about how you have to dress, rules about how you, can talk, how you have to talk, what you have to talk about, keeping it really shallow and, 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 and superficial, and, and, and then the whole thing is just hours of playing this game. <laughs> I know some of you didn't see what I just did. That's all right. I'm not doing it again. Here's the deal. What I just described doesn't just apply to the social world. It applies to the church. Because some of us actually think that there are spiritual insiders, that there are spiritual higher-ups, that there are people with spiritual status. And then you have certain people that get all chummy with those people so that they can be on the end And you find the same thing in those places. You find a lot of fake. You find a lot of phony. You find a lot of just game playing. In fact, I was thinking about this. Like, how did Grand Rapids become Beer City, USA? (laughs) And and I, I actually think because we're also one of the most religious places known to have a church on every single corner where so many of our churches are fake and pretentious, I think a lot of people much prefer the bar where they're going to find people whose feet are on the ground, who don't take themselves so seriously, who are naturally humble and not playing games. I find it a little bit disturbing that, that, that people think they can find real and humble in a bar more than a church. The church should be the most real, authentic place of the most humble people seeking other humble people. And this is why Crossroads puts a smile on my face. I love this church. I love what we've become. I love what we're becoming. We have a ways to go. People are learning to be real. We are, we are learning to be free. When we can raise our heart, hands and, and, and sing gospel songs, Christ found me in my helpless estate. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. 
Amen. I mean, this is the last place where we should be schmoozers. This this is the last place where we should be sucking up to certain kinds of people. This ought to be the first place where, where people are gravitating towards the same kind of people Jesus gravitated towards. The real, the humble, the poor in spirit, the broken. That's why Jesus has to say to everybody in verse 11, the humble are are exalted, the exalted are humbled. Because here's the deal, Jesus sees the world almost the exact opposite the way the world sees the world. With Jesus the first are last, the last are first. Those on the bottom are actually on the top. Those who are on the top are actually on the bottom. Those who are weak are actually strong. Those who are strong are actually weak. And if Jesus sees the world that way, so should we. That's how to be a guest. (laughs) Next, Jesus has the guts. I mean, this is guts. To stand and address the host. (laughs) He addresses the host. Verses 12 to 13, look at what he says. And this isn't just to the host, but this is everybody uh, there hears this. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not just invite your friends, brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. You will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the the blind, and then you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid. And now he's thinking Isaiah 25, at the resurrection of the righteous, at the great messianic banquet. In other words, and I, I, I think there's something that we Uh, need to be careful that we don't misunderstand here. Um, Jesus is assuming something when he says, don't just feast with your family, friends, and the people you know, and, 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 and all of that. He's assuming that. I mean, Jews have been practicing uh, Sabbath for a thousand years where, where that is exactly what they do. In fact, I'll even take this a little further. I think it's worth emphasizing the very thing that Jesus assumes because what Jesus assumes is something that is being lost to us. Jesus assumes home life and time around the table. When I look at just my own reality, I spent four times the time my kids have spent around the table in my growing up. Or another way to say that, my kids have probably spent a quarter of the time that I have when I was growing up around the table. I mean, it's what we did. We did it every single night, every single Sunday. This is where we did life. My best memories are are, our table, our our family gathered around the table. In fact, even it still is that way. We regularly go up to my parents' house where all the aunts, uncles, and cousins are and, and, and we congregate, and the times that we most congregate is around when we're eating and drinking. And then the things that happen are, are, are just amazing. And Libby and I did this even last week with, with her family, and we, we spent literally hours around the table. 
Hours where the, the patriarch and the matriarch of the family can, can push their wisdom and God in, into those of us who are younger. Time when the generations can, can learn from each other, discuss things together, do life together at a deep level. Listen, we must recapture a vision for home life. Parents fight for this. Which means you have to say no to a lot of good things. We need home. Our world needs home. Because home is the place where we recharge our batteries. It's where our hurts are healed. It's where all of our deepest appetites are fulfilled. Home is that place of of security and safety. It's a place of encouragement, comfort, And we know deep down that there is no earthly home that can possibly fulfill that. It's because God is home. God is what we are all looking for, no matter who we are. I don't don't care if you don't believe in God at all this morning. I can confidently say that I know that's what you're looking for. You're looking for God. God is the table. God is the home that every single heart is looking for. We all long to be at the Father's feast. And I think for this reason, home must become, not church, home must become the primary vehicle of the kingdom of heaven. You look at the first two centuries when the kingdom of heaven spread through the Roman Empire, it is not going from church to church as we think of church. It's going from home to home. When you look at the biblical story, going all the way back to Abraham, God has been inviting people home. He's been doing it through his people, ultimately through his Christ. Now he's doing it through us. And the call on God's people has never been for us to form this clique, this inner ring of us and God. God is calling every single one of us to be hosts, to open our homes. Look at what he says in verse 13. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon, do not invite your friends and all your sisters and relatives, your rich neighbors. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. That's what we're to do when we feast. We're to open our homes to the lost, to the needy, to the poor. We're to feast with them. We're to break bread with them. And then Jesus says, you know what? Keep the end in mind when you're doing this. Don't think about today. And the end that Jesus is talking about is not just when you get old and the benefits that that will give to you, but when when that day comes, the, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the Father's feast, the, the day of resurrection, new creation, on that day, Jesus says in verse 14, we will be blessed. And now Jesus finally gets a response from someone. Someone yells out, blessed is the one who will eat in the great, great messianic banquet. 
And to us, this sounds like a statement, but Jesus treats it like a question because it is a question. This guy is actually saying that to get a response, and he gets a response from Jesus. Because here's the huge uh, debate that's going on during the time of Jesus. Who will be at the Messianic banquet? Who will be around the table? Who's going to participate in the new heavens and the new earth? Or to put it in our Greek way of asking, who's going to be in heaven and who won't? Now, in Jesus' day, this was fiercely debated. Their contemporary translations of the Bible, which are called Targums, they're much like our living Bible or the message where you just take the text, but you start to write it in, in a way that, that, that uh, today the, the modern reader can understand. They're doing the same thing in the first century, and these Targums are wonderful because it, it gets you into how they thought about God and how they thought about Scripture. Well, here's the Targum, their new living translation on Isaiah 25. I have this on PowerPoint. It says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, that would include the Gentiles, the nations, he will make for all peoples on this mountain a meal, and although they supposed it is an honor, it will be a shame for them and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. Do you read that? The great banquet that Isaiah talks about. It's going to be for the Gentiles. And God's going to lay it before them. And they're going to come to trick them. So he can just unleash his plagues on them and destroy them. Or how about the book of Enoch? Um, this is a book that was written 100 years before Christ. It, it, it's not part of Scripture. It's not even in uh, the Catholic Apocrypha. Uh, but it's, it's just under Scripture. And in Jesus' day, it was almost more popular than Scripture. Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. Two whole verses. The book of Enoch speaks to those last days, to the great messianic banquet. And this is what's in uh, the book of Enoch. The angel of death will be present and take his sword and kill all the goyim, all the Gentiles, and the banquet hall will run with blood and anyone who wants to reach the banquet, the Jews that God's people will have to wade through the blood to get there where they will then sit down and sup with the Messiah. Another group of people during Jesus' day, the Essenes, these are the people that uh, went into the desert to live to live faithful to God. They're, they're the ones that had that, that messianic banquet every night in anticipation of the messianic banquet to come. On one of their scrolls, this is what it says. No one, Jew or Goy, Jew or Gentile, can attend this banquet who is smitten in his flesh, paralyzed in his feet or hands, or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or has any visible blemish. This is what Jesus is speaking into. And you know what all these perspectives reek of? Yep, God for me. God for my tribe. God for my clique. 
And I say, how disgusting. Does anything more betray the heart of God? Read Isaiah 58 today. The kind of fast that, that, that God chooses. That you'd open your home to the poor. That you provide food and, and, and shelter for the needy. Because God says, when you do that, I will say to you, Hanani, whatever you ask, I will do. Here's why. God is saying, invite the blind, invite the lame, invite the poor. It's because we want, we're too poor to do anything for God. We were too lame to get to God. We were too blind to even be able to see God, except for God's grace. God came. God sought us. God found us. God brought us back to his family. Not so we can be part of God's clique. When I was at Wheaton College, a guy by the name of Tony Campolo came and spoke. I'll never forget the story he told. And, and I started thinking yesterday, how am I even going to begin to capture? So I'm not even going to try. Listen to Tony Campolo for just a few minutes. If you go to Honolulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning, in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool. There was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, What do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. <laughs> I said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. <laughs> and the one on my immediate right said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till, you know, till they all left, and I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. 
I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out. She grabs my hand. She says, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know. But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, jeez, you know, God. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walked through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And we started singing, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake and finally he said, all right, Agnes, knock it off. <laughs> blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, now cut the cake, come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, what I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence, the whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her. I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Campolo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning.
I thought that was a clever answer. I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, No, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Do you hear me? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he didn't just preach sermons. He came eating and drinking to offer the hospitality of God. Hospitality is expensive. It's costly. Think about what it costs God. It costs the Father his own son. It costs the Son his own life. So that we could be brought in, so we could partner with him to seek and to save lost people by eating and drinking. God, thank you. That in our helpless estate, you came. You sought us. You found us. We praise you for bringing us home. Thank you for the call that's on our life. May we not be a people that just preach sermons and believe doctrines, but like you, God, may we eat and drink with people who lack love, who lack joy, who lack you. In your name I pray, amen. Uh, get serious about everyone being here two weeks from now. Let's, let's bring some love, some joy, some good food, some good drink, all right? Have a great day, you guys.